This is UCL Uncovering Politics, and this week we ask, which is better, a bureaucracy staffed by neutral civil servants or one filled by political appointees? My name is Jennifer Hudson, and welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics, the podcast of the School of Public Policy and Department of Political Science at University College London. In this, our final episode for the current academic year, we're going to tackle one of the biggest questions in political science. How do you run an effective government? In particular, how do you build a bureaucracy that's able to deliver? Is it better to have neutral civil servants or civil servants appointed on merit and retain their posts regardless of which parties are in power? Or should we prefer a politicized bureaucracy whose members are appointed, at least in part for their loyalty to the politicians in charge, or who come and go with their political masters. That question is particularly salient here in the UK at the moment. As we have discussed on several episodes of this podcast over the year, the current government under Boris Johnson has been widely criticised for undermining Britain's long-standing tradition of civil service neutrality by pushing some senior officials out and bringing others in that think it's better attuned to its agenda. Government ministers counter, however, that a nominally neutral civil service in fact betrays the prejudices of the establishment, and that a democratically elected government should not be fettered by unelected bureaucrats. Similar questions arise in countries around the world, and indeed my guest today has conducted research in dozens of countries aimed at answering these and related questions. That guest, Christian Schuster, is Professor of Public Management here in the Department of Political Science, and I'm delighted he joins me here now. Christian, welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics. Jennifer, thank you so much for having me. Delighted to be here. Christian, let's get started uh, with something that would be of interest to our listeners. Um, I want to ask you, how did you become interested in studying bureaucracies in the first place? What led you to this? You know, it was uh, really frustration. So um, studying bureaucracies and also studying bureaucratic politicization uh, was largely a function of uh, me sitting in an office tower Uh, on the 14th floor in Guatemala City, uh, sometime in the sort of the mid-late 2000s, I was working for the World Bank, and I I remember vividly um, getting this email telling us that the Minister of the Economy had uh, been substituted uh, once again. That happens sort of once every year. Uh, And I remember just, you know, putting my my face in my hands in despair because I knew that when when the minister changed, the next thing that was going to happen is the vice minister changed. The next thing that was going to happen was the head of department was going to change. The next thing that was going to happen was that likely all of the technical people were going to change. And so the projects that we've been working on, um, that we've been preparing, implementing, um, the people that were to implement them, that had all this procedural knowledge, all this substantive knowledge, they were all going to be gone. And for the next six or 12 months, we're going to try to convince these new people that this is a good project and we're trying to help them understand how to implement it. Um, and by the time we had finished doing that, the minister would change again and it would all start again. Um, so implementing policies was a bit like, like waiting for Godot because the country didn't have and doesn't have a, a professional and, and neutral civil service. And that was a problem f- for any sector that you'd be working on, infrastructure, health, education, no matter what you did, you had that problem. And so I felt at the time that civil service professionalization is really the mother of all reforms, that unless you manage to get that done, 
you know, you won't be able to 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 implement policies. You won't be able to deliver good services for for citizens. And so, at the time, it's much better now. But at the time, I was turning to research for answers. There wasn't really a lot, um, and so I decided to do uh, research on it myself and started a PhD on it. Lucky for us that, that you did. Christian, you've got several years of research um, behind you. Could you start off by giving us a picture of the different forms that bureaucracies can take across the world today? So so what do these look like when we look across the globe? So first of all, when we think about the UK civil service and the fact that we have a professional and neutral civil service in the United Kingdom, it's really important to note that that is an absolute uh, sort of global and historical anomaly. Um, so if we look at, for instance, expert survey data around the world, where they ask experts, how are people in government getting their jobs? Uh, then we find that in most countries in the world, political criteria are actually more important than merit criteria to get jobs, not just at the top level, but throughout the ranks in bureaucracy. Um, so in most countries in the world, civil services are politicized uh, rather than politically neutral. And OECD countries uh, or a subset of OECD countries like the UK are the, are the absolute exception. But it's important to flag that even in the UK, that is sort of a, a historical novelty. You know, the UK, most OECD countries have politicized bureaucracies uh, for their entire histories until sort of the, the late 19th, early 20th century, 150 or fewer years. So, you know, professional civil services are not a novel invention. The Chinese government sort of had merit exams two million years ago, but, but really it's only the last 150 years that we have them in some countries in the world. Having these professional civil services is, is an exception rather than the rule. Um, in which public servants then are recruited through impartial public examinations rather than politicians having the power to appoint uh, who works for government and who doesn't. And is that true in terms of the UK comparison when we think about the other countries we're at the, the G7 you know, this past week or the other countries of the European Union? Is it the case that, that most countries came to a, a more kind of politically neutral or depoliticized bureaucracy recently um, in, in their history? So, so the, 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 the fact that civil service professionalization is a recent phenomenon is, is, is transversal. So, um, you know, in, in, in the West, uh, we typically think of the Prussian bureaucracy as one of the first, so basically the Prussian rulers being scared of uh, being extinguished after Napoleon and then deciding to actually create a professional state administration that could have a professional tax administration that could fund the professional army um, so that the, the country could defend itself. That was sort of early 19th century. The UK followed late 19th century. The US followed late 19th, early 20th century. Um, and a lot of, if you think about OECD countries, if we look at sort of countries in Western Europe, we can make the claim that they have professional bureaucracies. If we look at countries in Eastern Europe that are still OECD countries, for instance, uh, still EU countries, there's still a lot of challenges with, with politicization. So the UK is by a long shot not the only country with a professional civil service, uh, but but it, there are a few others like it, and they tend to be sort of Western European, the US, Australia, Japan. I want to get to a little bit of the, the kind of depths of your, your research and thinking about different bureaucratic uh, forms. Can you give our listeners a sense of how we start to think about the, the, the types of bureaucracy and, and how do we judge which one's better? So there's got to be some kind of conceptual framework or, or set, or set of criteria that we can think about in terms of to judge which, which type of bureaucracy is better. Yeah, so so most economists would think of um, the civil service and 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 sort of judging whether civil service is superior or not. Um, they they would think of using a production function. So the idea of a production function is that a civil service has certain inputs. So for instance, the, the people that work for it, the capital, uh, you know, the the kind of office space that you have, 
Then there's what economists call technology, what are really processes, so the management practice inside government, IT processes. And they translate these inputs, personnel, goods, capital, into outputs in the first place. So uh, different management practices will, will make bureaucrats behave differently. Um, and these behaviors, what public servants do, uh, both at the front line and in the central government, then lead to different outcomes. So they lead to different service delivery. Uh, and then ultimately, these different outcomes, so better or worse education services, for instance, different types of revenue collection, uh, then lead to different outcomes for citizens, so better health outcomes, better education outcomes, greater economic growth. Um, and so when we when we judge whether bureaucracies are you know, better or worse, then we often look at how do different inputs or different processes, different management practices, for instance, shape the behavior, the attitudes of, of bureaucrats differently, and then how does that shape public service delivery and ultimate outcomes such as economic growth or poverty reduction differently. So, so tell me a little bit more about these these production functions, because it sounds quite mechanical in a way. It, it sounds very kind of black box. You input something and something comes out. But that, that can't possibly be true because there's, there's a lot of humanness that, that happens in between that processes. So, so how, how should we understand the kind of design of, of bureaucracies and how that interacts maybe with the people who work in there? The nice thing about using the production function is sort of it's very abstract and allows for a lot of different configurations because governments, um, of course, manage in very different ways in, in different countries. But so to make that sort of a less abstract, think of some think of an input like like, you know, the number of staff you had, then think of a management practice, say how you pay them. You know, do you pay them based on performance? Uh, do you pay them uh, based on their years of experience? Do you pay them uh, just a, a flat rate that doesn't change with either performance or years of experience? And, and what you would do in research is then try to find out how does that that input personnel and the interaction of that with this quote-unquote technology or management practice, how does that then diff- lead to different behaviors of public servants? So, so the nice thing about this sort of production function is it allows you to manipulate a lot of things and you can manipulate a lot of different things. So if you think about typologies of bureaucracies, they're endless, different typologies of Rechtsstaat bureaucracy and Weberian bureaucracy and new patrimonial bureaucracy, new public management bureaucracy, new public governance. So they exist in a lot of varieties. But in essence, what you're interested in as a scholar is to try to understand when we tweak certain things inside this black box. So when we change functions and management practices, how does that change how inputs are translated into sort of more immediate outputs? So different attitudes or behaviors of bureaucrats and then further down the causal chain end products such as different public service delivery outcomes. And then that can, of course, then lead to macro outcomes such as economic growth. And thinking about that kind of end process outcome, are there different criteria that, that we use to judge the kind of effectiveness or the quality of, of, of different types of bureaucracy? So, so one thing that would come to mind here would be um, corruption's been a kind of perennial concern. H- how do we judge whether bureaucracy is, is performing well? Yeah, it's a great question. So different scholars do that in different ways. What you, what you can do in the first place is think about whether those that work for bureaucracy uh, have the kind of att- attributes and do the kind of things that we would like them to do, right? So corruption is typically undertaken uh, in participation or with participation of, of bureaucrats, for instance. Um, so some research, and there's a lot of my own research, looks at, you know, are public servants motivated to serve the public? Are they motivated to work hard? Uh, do they do they work extra hours? Uh, are they are they willing? Are they committed to public service? Are they staying in the public sector? Do they de- at least declare that they're not stealing for themselves or politicians um, and the different ways of eliciting that? So that's sort of the first chain of the, of, the, of the outcome. And ideally, we want civil services that are ethical, that are motivated, that are committed to public service, right? Like, if that's not the case, you can be quite doubtful that you'll have good downstream sort of outcomes. Um, another way of judging it is to say, okay, um, 
it's important to have these attitudes and behaviors. Ideally, they also lead to better public service delivery outcomes. So you can look at uh, productivity outcomes of different public sector agencies. So lots of people look at, for instance, case data, um, you know, for instance, the amount of tax revenue that a tax auditor collects or uh, the number of complaints against the land, against the land registry entity uh, or, you know, in health of education, it's almost the most obvious thing, the health outcomes of kids, the educational outcomes, for instance, of kids. Um, so you can, you can think about it early in the causal chain or later down the causal chain in terms of actual public service delivery outcomes. Um, you started talking a little bit there, Christian, about some of your research. Can you describe um, some of the projects that you've done and what are some of the key findings and insights? Sure. So I've had a variety of, of projects just focus on this uh, on this key question for today, which is, should politicians have the power to appoint who works for bureaucracy or should there be an autonomous bureaucracy uh, hired based on, on ex uh, merit examinations? And the way I and other scholars initially did this with was through expert surveys. So uh, we had one project, for instance, in which we interviewed 950 experts in 22 countries, and they were experts in, in politicization or what is often called patronage in different sectors of the state. So we would interview people, for instance, in finance or in health and education. We would ask them, how far can politicians appoint? Why are they doing this? Who are the kind of people that are getting jobs? And what, what came out of this was, was interesting in terms of our understanding of, of, of patronage or politicization in that it showed that when you generalize about whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, um, those generalizations are very conditional on how the system is used. So we found that there was a lot of variation in why Politicians, when they have this power to appoint, why they appoint. Um, so some of them do it purely for the control of state institutions and to spur sort of better policy implementation, for instance, while others did it to reward their electoral supporters. Um, and you could clearly see that, you know, using state positions to reward those that got you into the office is probably not what we want to use the state for, because it means that those that are in government can give lots of things to people that support them electorally and that will help them win the next election, but it will be terrible for public service delivery because then state, state positions are given not to those who are competent to do the job, but, but to people merely for having been electoral supporters. What we also found is that the criteria for appointment varied quite a bit. So in some countries, politicians actually quite care quite a bit about, about appointing with their power, appointing people that are competent, whereas in others, loyalty is, is, is the overriding concern. And what we also found is that the less of politicization there is, the better the nature tends to be. So if there's less politicization, those are also the countries where typically ministers use it to appoint people more for the control of state institutions, not to reward electoral supporters, and they tended to prioritize more people who are actually professionally qualified. Um, but what it really shows you is that this is a capricious system. So it gives discretion to a politician and they can use that uh, in, in really bad ways and, and potentially less bad ways. One problem with this approach, of course, it, it sort of tells you that this is a capricious system, but it doesn't tell you anything about average effects. So like on average, is this then a good thing or a bad thing? Another problem that we, we saw with this approach is when you ask experts, you know, how politicized is, uh, you know, the health sector in and even the UK, uh, you know, how many political appointments are made formally or informally, it's very difficult for experts to know that. Um, it's, you know, oftentimes they, they respond, well, well, if I had to guess, um, I would say X and Y. And so we realized that from a measurement perspective, we might not actually be getting, um, we might not actually be getting strong measures. And so since then, over the last sort of seven or so years, um, I've been conducting surveys of public servants, um, where we ask public servants, among many things, how they get their jobs in the public sector. 
Um, and then we can see how that relates to outcomes such as the integrity, um, corruption, work motivation, public service motivation. Um, and the nice thing about that is if you do that with hundreds of thousands of public servants is you have a lot of very fine-grained microdata about how jobs are actually allocated and how much power politicians really have in different countries to appoint public servants into government. And so in this novel approach, and I'm happy to talk about that in more depth, uh, but we usually find that public servants who are hired through political connections tend to be worse. Um, so they tend to be more corrupt. They tend to be less motivated to work hard, for instance. Okay. Um, you mentioned uh, differences in terms of uh, politicians who might appoint based on you know competence, that they were interested in getting kind of competent bureaucrats versus ones who appointed just on loyalty as, as, a, as a kind of reward. Um Country differences there. What were the what were the mechanisms that that drove that? Was it just simply you know kind of party things that were motivated within the party? But what what explains why you make this different type of appointment? So I think one key differentiation, and that's a differentiation you see, of course, between electoral systems in OECD and non-OECD countries, is that the way you mobilize votes is different. And in developing countries, and that's of course the big divide in a lot of developing countries, jobs for votes is really important. So using public employment in a context where formal employment is sort of far and few between, so where you don't have a strong developed private sector, a, a government job becomes really coveted, becomes really valuable. And so having a politician that gives you a government job means that you and all your family members are not only going to vote for that politician, but you're going to go out and party really hard so that you can keep your job at the next election. And um, so this is what we think of as political clientelism. And so if the electoral mobilization base in a country is political clientelism and you give politicians formally or informally discretion over how people get their jobs, it is not surprising that they then respond uh, by using that discretion to hire a lot of uh, party affiliates and by trying to mobilize electoral support. In OECD countries, by, co by contrast, that is typically not an effective way to mobilize votes because the public sectors are smaller, uh, because you have a developed private sector, and so it's a lot less interesting uh, to use jobs for, for that purpose. There are some exceptions. So if you have, for instance, uh, a, uh, a rich donor giving them some control over, for instance, infrastructure and infrastructure projects that often have a lot of opportunities for uh, illicit enrichment, that, that, might be, that, that might still be in the cards, but it's more on the margin. It's not sort of this mass clientelism. Um, and of course, if, you're, if you cannot mobilize based on political clientelism, then your criteria will also change. So then you think of uh, your appointments, the few appointments that you often have in these in these in these countries, more as a way to infuse your uh, ideology, to infuse your control over state institutions, rather than trading them as favors. And then you need competent people, in part because you need to have people that are competent enough to control the competent civil servants. If we were to take the kind of bulk of of this research, um, kind of in the aggregate, then your your conclusion is that a neutral civil service is is better. How might you react to the, the prospect that, you know, some government, government ministers in the UK might say they agree with you um, in regards to the bureaucracy as a whole? So on balance, it's better to have a neutral civil service. But when it comes to a very small cadre of, of senior civil servants who are closely involved in policymaking, um, it's really important that ministers who are small compared to the whole machinery of government, that they have people that they can trust um, in positions of power and that, that, that you know, civil servants won't kind of subvert the government's agenda. How would you respond to the kind of need um, for a set of a political appointees against the backdrop of this kind of wider neutral civil service? Yeah, it's a great question. So 
First of all, it's not surprising that a politician will always prefer more political control and uh, will always try to find reasons for, for why that is desirable for the politician, you know, to have more appointment powers in bureaucracy. So that's a perennial complaint you get from politicians uh, when they face neutral civil services. Uh, but ultimately, it's an empirical question. The question is, what kind of system, um, thinking about the production function, leads to better public service delivery outcomes uh, and leads to better outcomes for citizens? And so for a society, that is the key question. Um, now, just sort of to expand a bit on, on, on what I mentioned earlier about sort of how are political appointees different in the first place. Um, and I think that's an important part of the answer to that question. When we, when we did surveys and when we did lab games with, with public servants around the world, uh, we found that they are, that they have the kind of attributes that, that, that politicians like. So, uh, we see very clearly that public servants that indicate to us that they were hired through political connections and sort of across the sort of 15 to 20 countries we've surveyed, typically about a fourth of public servants would actually tell you uh, that they've been hired through political connections. About half of them would say through personal connections. The line here is, of course, very blurred, but it's a very large share. Um, those public servants, they also say that when you ask them, you know, is it more important for you to respond to political directives or to follow professional norms? They would say, yeah, and follow political directives. That is more important. Um, when you uh, administer list experiments and ask them, you know, have you in the last two years ever diverted government resources uh, to benefit a politician? Uh, they're much more likely, um, dramatically more likely to say, yes, we've done that. Um, so you can clearly see that from a politician's perspective, these are in some way preferable public servants because they help you um, mm. and they help you and are not constrained by professional norms um, and often not even constrained by legal norms uh, because they, uh, in part because you incentivize them because they owe you their jobs. Uh, and in part because we also see that they're intrinsically different. So we play lab games with them, we find they're less honest in lab games. We play pro-social games with them, we find they're less pro-social. And we find that even if we restrict the ranks to the top ranks. So it's very clear that these public servants are generally not desirable. And the question is, is would it be acceptable if a small share of these public servants at the very top, even though they might potentially hold these characteristics and, and have these attitudes that we generally don't find desirable, would it be nonetheless desirable for a political control reason? And I think here, this is a question where different countries come out in different ways. So the US, for instance, has a lot of political appointees, more than thousands of political appointees. The evidence there is that those tend to produce agencies with worse performance uh, and also with more corruption in procurement. Um, so that suggests that's probably not desirable to have a few thousand of them. Um, and then the question is sort of, would it be desirable to have a few of them. Um, and this is, of course, a very difficult question to answer empirically. What is interesting, though, is that a lot of countries don't answer that question by saying, yes, it would be desirable to have a few of them, but they try to find institutional designs that safeguard both competence and political responsiveness. And I think if the UK ever were to think about furthering political appointees, I think there's no evidence that that would be a good thing. But if it were ever to do that, you could think about these institutional designs. So, for instance, Chile has uh, a system where senior civil servants go through a merit-based appointment. Then there's a long shortlist of people that are qualified, but then the politician selects freely from that shortlist. So they have, quote-unquote, free choice, but only among people that are actually qualified for the position. Um, in Germany, for instance, they can only select among public servants, but public servants often have party affiliation. Okay? So they sort of, again, square the circle of having people that are competent, have a lot of institutional memory, but they're also politically responsive. So there are a lot of institutional designs that help you get political responsiveness without having that capriciousness of a political system where the minister just appoints freely, freely no matter how incompetent the person is. 
Um, and I think even in, in a case like the UK, that would be usually preferable. I mean, I think you've you've kind of made the case pretty convincingly that political appointees, you know, perform uh, perform worse on a lot of a lot of indicators that really matter in terms of the outcomes that that, that we see. Let me put another question to you that's coming at it from a different way. Is is there an argument or is there a credible argument that a civil service that recruits on merit through its own chen- its own channels, independent of, of politics or kind of partisan affiliation, that that civil service or those set of bureaucrats, you know, develop habits of their own, a mindset of their own, and therefore there's an actual bias within the civil service that is not partisan or political in a way, but that it is detrimental to kind of producing good outcomes in and of itself. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the the perennial discussion between sort of, you know, uh, when is bureaucratic autonomy too much bureaucratic autonomy? um, And when as a result of that become, uh, you have sort of bureaucrats that are basically a corporate entity that protects their own interests rather than that of society. So generally speaking, as I mentioned earlier, if, if the choice is between political appointments and merit examinations, the evidence is pretty clearly in favor of merit examinations. That doesn't mean that there are not instances where you'd be concerned about bureaucratic autonomy leading to this sort of corporatization of interests, particularly when you have public sector unions in the mix as well. Um, It's something that I think sort of two things in regards to that. So one is, would we necessarily be worried about bureaucrats developing their own identity, developing their own habits? so if you go back to what Max Weber, for instance, we would think that's actually potentially a really good thing uh, because we want them to socialize into norms. We want them to identify with their organization. But of course, the hope is that the kind of norms and identification they develop is one related to public service rather than one related to serving their own interests as bureaucrats. right? And so your concern is if you do not have political oversight, uh, this identification might not be an identification into public service, but might be an identification into sort of corporate interests of their own. Um, That has happened in a few countries around the world, um, but it's typically a lesser concern relative to the political concern. Uh, And there are other ways of sort of uh, dealing with that, but it's typically a lesser concern purely empirically when we look at the data. One of the one of the concerns that was raised, at least here in the UK, was that UK civil servants kind of overwhelmingly remain, if we think back to the, the 2016 referendum, um, but yet were effectively in charge of, of kind of delivering um, uh, the outcome of the referendum. So is it necessarily a problem? Um, that a, a civil service or 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 the bureaucracy would have to deliver something that they are inherently against, or is that the merit of uh, a civil service that that is free from political, you know, kind of uh, or partisan or politicization that they are free then to implement because they are not kind of tied to a political master or a political outcome? Yeah, so I think you you every year you will have, um, uh, or, or with every election, you might have a new government. Um, that new government will want to pursue policies that uh, a fraction of the population disagrees with. And as a result of that, uh, a fraction of civil servants also will, will disagree with. And one important thing about a neutral civil service is that they are tasked with implementing policies uh, that uh, irrespective of, of, of the political colors of government. Um, and so they, they are still beholden to public values, which means they will want to make sure that what is proposed here is legal. Um, they will want to make sure that what is proposed here is not, um, you know, an outrageous uh, uh, conflict of interest. Um, and, and you see that in the media recurrently, that when that happens, they try to expose that. Um, but it's also, I think, important to flag that, that ultimately the, the UK civil service is implementing Brexit. Um, is implementing Brexit at speed. Uh, oftentimes, many of them work, you know, long nights and long weekends to make this happen, and you know, to make sure that 
uh, customs are in place when, you know, uh, you know, so I think it's an interesting discussion, but I think it ultimately just, just means that, it, so Brexit makes something more prominent that you always have in the civil service, that is changing political priorities, but you need a body that is willing to implement things so long as they're not clearly against the public interest. And I think the UK civil service has done that with Brexit. So you've, you've said clearly that the evidence supports having a neutral uh, civil service, but that you also said that relatively few countries are kind of organized in this way. And, and, and you started, I think, to give us some of the reasons, um, particularly thinking about the, the, the electoral connection. Um, can you give us a little bit more of an explanation? If this is so desirable, why are so few countries set up this way? Yeah, so I think it's a, it's a classic case where this is desirable in the long run for the population as a whole. Uh, but typically not desirable in the short run for the politicians in power. Um, so if you if you go to any developing country, then uh, the platform of the opposition party is almost always, you know, professionalize the civil service. Uh, and in parentheses, that means uh, take away con political control of the bureaucracy from the incumbent uh, that is using that for their electoral advantage. Uh, and then when they come into power, they just completely forget about that um, and continue to politicize the bureaucracy because it's convenient for them in the short run to retain political power, to monopolize political power. Um, and that's also why, historically, most civil service professionalization uh, or most civil service, significant civil service reforms have really been historical accidents in individual countries um, that together then meant that a number of countries now have professional civil services. And because they were really unlikely historical accidents, it's also really important to protect professional services. Because from a politician's perspective, in the short run, it's almost always preferable to have political control. Uh, so just, you know, think about think about the U.S. and the U.K., for instance, right? So the U.S., the major push for civil service reform in practice in the U.S. came with Teddy Roosevelt, early 20th century. Why did the U.S. professionalize the civil service? Was there some sort of enlightened idea about better government uh, that spurred the leaders of this country to, you know, professionalize the civil service? Um, you know, you would hope so, and there were some enlightened elements. But in practice, what happened is you had a vice president uh, who did have no political base, was appointed as vice president, a powerless vice president, um, largely for political reasons, outside all the political networks. And then the president excellently died. So this vice president, completely outside the political networks, becomes president and decides, okay, how can I disempower all these people within these political networks that are basically living off these politicization or patronage networks? And so he decided, I'm going to reform the civil service so that these guys can't appoint anybody anymore. And then their power base is gone and I'm going to be a long president. That's what he did. He was very successful with that. Um, but that was, that was, that was sort of what, what spurred a lot of the reform in the US. And in the UK, you, you, know, you could also hope that there was this enlightened view of, of better government. And there were some people that worked on the technical level that certainly had that view. Uh, but in practice, in the UK, much of the reform came uh, with an expansion of uh, the enfranchment. Uh, uh, in, the, in the 19th century of the number of people who could vote. And, and the elites were really worried that this would mean that suddenly uh, these new voters, these poorer people, could also get government jobs because if they're given out discretionarily, then of course it's not, it's not surprising if, if, if parties start using them to, to mobilize voters and give them out. And so they decided, okay, how can we protect our privileged access to government jobs and they decided merit is the answer, because if we combine merit with the kind of knowledge that you get at Oxford or Cambridge, uh, with examinations that privilege, uh, you know, uh, elite educated generalists, uh, then we for a long time as an elite will retain privileged access to the state. And they did. Um, and that's how the uh, UK civil service professionalized. So they're very particular historical accidents. I mentioned Prussia earlier, which was basically 
a, a, a monarchy almost extinguished by Napoleon and deciding they need to change course. Um, so in individual countries, you had sort of very, very um, rare historical moments that then led to these reforms. And it also means that we have to be very careful when we think about repoliticizing the civil service, because then we have to wait for another one of these rare political moments to get back the professional services, civil services that have done us so much good. I was going to ask if there are lessons that we could learn from those countries that do have a, a neutral civil service, but it sounds like they're, they are um, kind of functions of, of historical chance rather than kind of situations where we see politicians setting out and keeping to you know significant reforms of, of civil service to bring in um, a more neutral civil service. Um, final question, should we draw the lesson that kind of constant vigilance in, into against backsliding against kind of a politici politicization is needed is there a constant set of, of kind of checks that we need to be wary of or be thinking about where we have neutral civil service um to protect that if that is really the kind of most valuable way to 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 set up these institutions yeah i mean if you read the media then then you think that citizens should engage in a constant fight against bureaucracy, but in practice, they should really engage in a constant fight for bureaucracy, and in particular for a professional bureaucracy, uh, because um, as I mentioned empirically, it's clearly preferable for the UK for many other countries, um, and yet in practice, it's, it's, it's rare for it for, it, for a country to, to attain it. Um, you know, what should we be looking out for? If the government starts to make a lot of appointments of people that are not qualified for their positions, that should be a cause for concern. Uh, if the government uh, tries to uh, undermine uh, or remove senior civil servants, uh, bully civil servants, uh, and otherwise try to use other levers because they don't have a lot of appointment levers, so they try to use other levers to politicize the, the civil service, that is a cause for concern. Um, and of course, there are many other ways in which governments politicize the civil service without directly politicizing the people, right? Like they take control of procurement, for instance, in government, rather than saying a civil service should have a neutral competitive procedure um, they start giving out giving out contracts to individuals and try try to take politicized control of part of the state when they can't directly control the civil service itself. These are all major red flags, and we should be concerned about them. Before we close, I wanted just to ask you, thinking about your time at your desk in Guatemala with your kind of head in your hands, you know, bemoaning another uh, another kind of change in 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 the organization that you were working in. Um, what's been the one? research finding in the course of your academic career, that if you had free reign to kind of go and implement bureaucracies worldwide, what, what would what would you do to make bureaucracies better based on your research? Well, I, I think I was trying to convince you of that over the last 35 minutes. I think um, the key, the absolute key is that in a government, those that get jobs in government should have been hired through a job that was advertised uh, through uh, a written examination that is anonymous, through a fair and objective interview panel. Uh, and if they get their job in that way, that means that every citizen society actually has equal opportunity to at least apply for a job in the public sector, which is not the case if you put it aside. But it also means we ultimately have public servants that are more qualified, more committed, and producing outcomes that are better for citizens. Um, and so that's that's the one reform I think every every citizen around the world deserves. Thank you very much, Professor Christian Schuster. Christian has published numerous academic articles and policy reports on the matters that we've been discussing here, and we'll put a link to his website in the show notes for this episode. As I mentioned at the start, that's it for this series of UCL Uncovering Politics, and indeed for this academic year. I've really enjoyed putting together these podcasts over the past year, and I hope you've enjoyed listening to them too. 
Over the summer, we'll be recharging our batteries and getting stuck into lots of fresh research. We'll be back in the autumn and ready to bring more of our most significant findings to your ears. So to make sure that the next episode of UCL Uncovering Politics drops straight into your inbox when we release it in October, let me encourage you to subscribe. You can do so on Apple, Spotify, or whatever podcast provider you use. I'm Jennifer Hudson. Our producer is Abby Turner. Our theme music is written and performed by John Mann. This has been UCL Uncovering Politics. Thank you very much for listening.